Thank you to our musicians for leading us this morning, particularly without Audra here. Um, it's like missing your Hall of Fame quarterback when <laughs> she's not here. And uh, thank you guys. You guys did a great job um, filling in and leading us this morning. So you can open up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. Now I think this morning, if if you were to sit down, as maybe some of you will do over the next few days, and read the Christmas story with your family, you would probably start, as we did this morning, in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, or as we'll do on Tuesday night at the Christmas Eve service, you would probably read Luke chapter 2. You probably would not read Matthew 1 verses 1 through 17. And I tried to have mercy on Zach this morning and not make him read Matthew 1, 1 to 17 publicly because of all the list of names. I think he's fully capable of doing that and pronouncing them correctly, actually, but I was trying to be kind. But most of the time we do. We jump right to verse 18, and it makes sense in some ways, but obviously for Matthew, the Christmas story doesn't start in verse 18. For Matthew... The Christmas story includes verses 1 to 17. And it's interesting because if you were to just open your Bible, if you were a new believer and you were to read and think, I need to read my Bible and I'm going to open up to the beginning of the New Testament and start reading, this is where you would start. You would start with this list of names. And maybe after reading this list of names, you would think maybe not much more than, wow, that was a lot of names. And I don't know how to pronounce a lot of them. Some of them are odd. But when you read this list of names, obviously Jesus is the end of this list, but maybe for you, if you were to read this, for me, it's easy to think about family history because that's essentially what this is. For me, I think about my family history, your family tree. When I was in junior high, back in Virginia, I did a study on my family history. And uh, I think we still have that study at some point or at some place in our house. But when I did that study, I found out some pretty interesting things about my family background, particularly on my mom's side. Um, we can trace my mom's family history all the way back to Yorkshire, England in the 1500s. And um, in fact, my aunt and uncle just recently went over to Yorkshire and, and met rep distant relatives that they'd never met before. Um, it's pretty cool. So we can trace them all the way back to Yorkshire in the 1500s. And some of them were Methodists while John Wesley was still alive. And they were actually Methodist pastors who knew Wesley um, in England when the Methodist movement was, was just starting. Um, and then the, the family, some of the family moved over to Virginia in the mid-1800s, right around the time of the Civil War, right after the Civil War. They moved over to central Virginia and... Uh, started farming land there in central Virginia, which is the same land that my mom grew up on. And some of her family are still there farming that land. And there's a, a graveyard near the land that has her mother buried on it and all the way back to her relatives in the, the mid-1800s. Nowadays, it's actually somewhat easy to find that information out by going on websites like Ancestry.com and and other ones, and you can, you can actually discover quite a bit more than you, you probably already know. Um, I signed up for one of those free trials of Ancestry a few years ago, and I actually found my great-grandfather's registration card for World War I. Um, you can see a copy of it there. 
Um, we've gone on for Bethany's family history, and we found where her great-grandfather, you can see his signature, signing into Ellis Island from Prussia in the early 1900s. And so uh, it's pretty neat to do some of that stuff and to think about um, your family history. And if I were to, to pull up my family tree and show you my family tree, you would just see a list of names, much like you see here in Matthew chapter 1. You would see names, and you probably wouldn't find it all that interesting. You wouldn't know anything about their backgrounds, really, or what they went through in their lives, and it would just look like a list of names. But when you get to Matthew 1, and you read this list of names here, we need to try to, to pull our thinking out of that mode where we think, ah, oh, it's just a list of names. I don't understand why Matthew's putting all these names here. We want to understand a little bit more about why Matthew did this. Now, this morning, I'm not going to go through every name. We're not going to walk verse by verse through this genealogy, right? Um, probably not the best way for me to handle that this morning. But there's a reason that Matthew includes this genealogy here. If you think back all the way to, Matthew, or to Genesis chapter 1, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so the understanding there is that they're going to have descendants. And so God values the multiplication of his image bearers on the earth. But then when you move a couple of chapters forward into Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin and God gives a promise to Eve, doesn't he? He says, a seed coming from you is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so that family line, that history is very, very important. And so what you see in the book of Genesis is you see that family line of the seed of the woman being traced through the book of Genesis. And that's why you read genealogies over and over again in Genesis. And that's why you see those genealogies throughout the rest of Scripture. And that's part of the reason here that Matthew gives you that genealogy. He's connecting Jesus's family history back to the works that God has done and the promises that he has made. So I think you could say, actually, that rather than being boring parts of Scripture, these genealogies are some of the most important parts of Scripture because it's through these lists that we understand that Jesus is that seed of the woman. And we understand several other things about him that we'll see this morning from this passage. So this isn't a dry academic study or piece of scripture. It's actually a vibrant family history, and we want to understand it better this morning. So let me, uh, let me show you a little bit about this genealogy this morning, all right? So this thing is put together in an amazing way. It's not randomly listed out. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So Matthew divides this list up into three sections, and he says that each of those sections has 14 parts to it. Now, what's tough about this is that some of these time periods actually include more than 14 people in them. And so some people see this as a contradiction in Scripture, but that's not what Matthew's doing here. He fully is aware and understands that some of these time periods were longer than others. And so what he's doing here is he skips 
from a grandfather or a great-grandfather to a great-grandson at times. And the reason he puts this together in these three equal sections is it's a way of telling us that this is the complete history. This is the final play of this history. This is the culmination of everything that has come before it. He's not telling us that he's listing every single person in the line, but what he wants us to understand is this completes the whole thing. It all comes to a culmination here. So all, if you think and look at all of these names, each of these people lived a unique life. They made decisions, some good, some bad. Many of them were married or all of them were married. They had different struggles, different victories. And what Matthew is saying here is that all of these lives throughout this history and everything that happened to them has led us to this climax and to this point. The zenith of the whole thing is this seed who has come. So he's organized it this way to show us that this is the whole story. This is the culmination of the story in this person who I'm going to talk about in verses 18 to 25. But he also draws our attention to some key points along the way, doesn't he? Look at verse 1. In any family history, there are highs and there are lows. Some people are more important than others. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So now you have two key figures right there that he wants you to think about. But then look down at verse 17. We already saw this. So all the generations from Abraham to David. So again, he identifies those people, those two guys, as key figures in this genealogy. But he also says that there's a key moment here, the deportation to Babylon. And so these are the key points of this genealogy as they relate to Jesus Christ. And so we have to think about those key moments and those key people, those high and low points. So this thing is beautifully structured, and we're not going to study every name and every verse in it this morning. But here's what we're going to look at. Four family portraits of the work of Jesus that give us the true meaning of Christmas. You want to know what Christmas is all about? Understand how Matthew starts the Christmas story. And he gives us family portraits of Jesus and his background and his history that culminate in the Christ and in his work. So four family portraits of the work of Jesus. And the first one of these portraits is that Jesus is the new creation and the last Adam. Now, you're looking at this list going, okay, time out. I did not see Adam listed anywhere here. How do you even get that? How is he factoring in here? Well, look at the very first words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word genealogy actually is probably better rendered Genesis in Greek. And it's that same phrase is used two other times in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And you could probably guess where. Genesis 2.4 and Genesis 5.1, talking about the creation of the world and talking about Adam as the first man in that creation, the beginning of the creation of the world and Adam's family line. And so I think Matthew uses this language here, this phrase here, because he wants us to think about Jesus Christ as he relates to the original creation and to the first man, Adam. He's drawing a parallel here. 
between these two. So you could read this like the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. So think about this. He is the new creation. In contrast to the old creation, the old creation began in Genesis 1, when God creates the world, the physical universe, and plants and the animals and everything else in it. But what Matthew is saying here is this is a decisive moment. The old creation happened in Genesis 1, but the new creation is beginning with the birth of this baby. It's a new start here, a new age, a new time period has dawned with the coming of this child. And this new age will dramatically impact all of creation. The genesis of Jesus Christ. But he also wants us to think of this in terms of Adam, the first man in the old creation. So what do we know about Adam? Well, he's the father of the human race, And God gave to he and Eve a particular mission. They were to take dominion over the earth. They were to fill the earth with God's image bearers who would honor him and worship him. And obviously we know from Genesis 3 that they monumentally failed at their task and they obeyed the voice of the serpent. They rebelled against God. And we're all suffering the consequences of that fall, the first Adam. But here, I think Matthew wants us to think of Adam, the first Adam, and what happened to him, because he wants us to think in terms of Adam's decision to plunge us into sin, and he's saying here that there's a new Adam, a last Adam, who is coming, and it's this child, and he is going to reverse the work of the first Adam, and he's going to bring a new creation, and light is going to dawn, and it's the beginning of blessings and freedom from enslavement to sin for all people. And I have no reason to doubt that when the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 talks about the first Adam and the last Adam, that he's thinking about what Matthew wrote here. Jesus is the Genesis. This is the Genesis of the new creation and of Adam, of of the last Adam. And so he brings blessing to us. And that brings us to our second family portrait. He's the new creation in the last Adam, and he's the true blessing of Abraham. Now, this one is a little easier to see, right? Verse one, the book of the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so again, if you go back down to verse 17, you see Abraham is a key person in this family history here. And the first section of this family history of this genealogy in verses 2 to 6 deals with Abraham and with his descendants. It essentially starts with him in verse 2. And so after Adam in the book of Genesis, you probably know and are aware of this history, but you, you follow Adam's sin and you follow this steady downward stream of humanity into violence and sin And even after the flood, when God cleanses the earth, it starts again and sin spreads out over the world. And that whole history from chapter 4 of Genesis to chapter 11 sort of culminates in this scene at the Tower of Babel, which is a very important scene. And humanity comes together and they're trying to build this tower in rebellion against God and they want to exalt themselves. And it's sort of the pinnacle of 
mankind's sinful nature. We all come together and rebel against God, and it's like the definition of worldliness in Genesis chapter 11. All the nations come together, even though at that point they're not really nations. And so God scatters their language or changes their language, confuses their language, and scatters them out over the whole world. And then on the heels of that, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. And what's interesting is what he says to Abraham. So you've got all the nations rebelling against God and being spread out over the world in Genesis 11. And then Abraham comes onto the scene. And what does God say to Abraham? Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then here's the key part. And in you, in your family, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That last little phrase there is of monumental significance. So you've just seen all of these nations disobey God, and God says, okay, I love my creation, and despite the disobedience and rebellion, I'm going to find a way to bless these nations and to bless these same people who have come under my wrath and my curse. And so he promises that, and he promises to reverse the curse that he has laid out on these nations. And so then if you track from Abraham, really the rest of the Old Testament is the story of Abraham, and it's the story of his family. And you see these promises, these covenant, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, that he's going to bring a blessing to the nations through Abraham's descendants, through his family line. And so with all of that in mind, and with this passage in mind, look how Paul understands this in Galatians 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so Paul reads that from Genesis 12 and says, that was the gospel being proclaimed The nations are going to receive blessing and grace. And Matthew here structures his genealogy and highlights Abraham to help us understand that this child is the true blessing of Abraham. He's the one that brings that blessing through his birth and his life. And it's really interesting. If you read through this genealogy, I'm sure you've heard this before, but there are four women mentioned in this genealogy. And three of those women are Gentiles. Three of them are outside of the nation of Israel. And I think that just shows us that this blessing that God promises to Abraham is already extending to the nations, even in the Old Testament. And that really ramps up with the work of Christ and with the Great Commission and into the book of Acts. That brings us to our third sketch here. So he's the new creation, the last Adam. He's the true blessing of Abraham, the gospel. And then third, he is the true Davidic king. 
So Abraham is highlighted in this genealogy, and obviously you can see the other name that is highlighted big time, and this whole thing is structured around is the name of David here. Verses 6 through 11 talk about the, the descendants of David and David's role in this genealogy. So why does Matthew want us to consider David here? Well, Abraham is true blessing, the covenant God made with Abraham. David is the first king, really, from the line of Judah. He's a dominant figure in the Old Testament. And if you read through the Old Testament, all subsequent kings are compared to David. I mean, he is the standard. He's the standard for what it means to be a king over God's people. Now, Abraham had received a covenant from God, a promise from God, but David also received a promise from God, a covenant from God in 2 Samuel 7. And the promise that he received from God was that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. And the blessing to the nations comes through Abraham, and then it clarifies that it's going to come through a king in the line of David, a descendant of David. And so God makes this promise to David, and then as you read the rest of Samuel, Kings, you find out that David's descendants do not obey God, and they do not follow God's commandments for them. And so there's this tension in the Old Testament, right? You've got this promise that God has made to David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever, but then you've got his descendants who consistently disobey and they worship idols, and they continue to rebel against God. And so there's this tension of this promise and then the complete sinfulness of David's descendants. And then when you get to the prophets, you read about the expectation that this promise is going to come true despite the sinfulness of these kings. I mean, Isaiah 9 is a good example of this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so Matthew highlights David here because what the nation needs is a king who will reign and who will obey God and walk with God and sit on the throne and judge in righteousness and bring peace forever. And there's a phrase used in verse 1 that you can see the son of David, a descendant coming in the line of David. Matthew uses that phrase here because he wants us to understand that this person, this child, is the kingly fulfillment of that covenant promise in 2 Samuel 7. He is a son of David. He is the resolution of the tension felt in the Old Testament. He'll obey, and he will reign forever. And that brings us to our last sketch. And I love this one. Not that I don't love the other ones. Jesus is the true return from exile. The true return from exile. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but verse 6 begins the focus on David, and it moves through the history of Israel, and then you get to verse 12, or verse 11 and verse 12, and that history, that, dis, that line of kings 
receiving the promise of God is disrupted. The whole thing comes unglued. You've got these promises to Abraham and these promises to David, and then you get to verse 11, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And it's like the the seams come undone here. Everything is interrupted. And this is an important moment in the history of Israel and in the development of these promises. The people of Israel are exiled from the land that God has promised to them. And you can see how important this is to Matthew. He wants you to think about this because in verse 17, how does he divide up this whole genealogy, this whole family history? David, or Abraham, David, and the exile. It's significant. So think about those three moments in Israel's history, right? They sort of frame the whole thing, don't they? The beginning, the father of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel and Abraham, the high point of the nation, in many ways, with David and his son Solomon, the promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, the pinnacle of the nation of Israel there. And then you've got the low point in exile. I mean, the whole thing has essentially led to this in the Old Testament. Low point. And so this is an important moment in the history of Israel. And Matthew wants us to think about this moment of exile as it relates to Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of that. So why? Why does he put so much weight on the exile of the Israelites from their land? The reason he does that is because the the real reason for the exile was never actually addressed. Yeah, they came back into the land. I mean, you can read that in the Old Testament. Some people did. They were punished for their sins. They got kicked out of the land, and some of them came back into the land. They started to rebuild the city. But they were essentially the same people, weren't they? Nothing had really changed when they came back into the land. The reason that they were exiled in the first place was never dealt with. Why were they exiled? Because they consistently disobeyed the covenant that God had given them. And they couldn't obey it. They didn't have the heart to obey it. I mean, that's what Moses tells them in the book of Deuteronomy. They couldn't, you can't do this. I mean, you can read Deuteronomy and know the whole thing is going to come unglued. Look what he says. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them and you above all peoples as you are this day. And here's what they needed to do that they could not do. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. But they couldn't do that. They needed new hearts. That's the problem. That's why they went into exile, and that wasn't actually dealt with by sending them into exile and bringing them back. They needed the fundamental sin nature that they had to be dealt with. And so their problem goes much deeper than being kicked out of the promised land. Matthew mentions the exile here because the exile gets to the root of the problem. 
The exile that they experienced was sort of a, a picture of this much bigger exile that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. Their hearts were changed fundamentally. They were kicked out of God's presence. They were exiled from him, and everything was different. And Israel was exiled from the land because the original exile from the presence of the Lord had never been dealt with. And if you think about it, when Israel comes back into the land, and even after the temple is rebuilt, we never hear about the glory of the Lord coming back to the temple and indwelling the temple in the same way it did before. It's not the same. And so what the people need is they need forgiveness of sins, and they need to be brought back into the presence of God. And so Matthew's genealogy here ends with the exile and then leads to Jesus Christ because he is the answer to that. He is the true return from exile. And I want to show you how Matthew addresses this right away. Look at what, what Zach read this morning. If their real need was forgiveness of their sins and to be brought back into the presence of the Lord, then look what he says in Matthew 1 and verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right? Not just that he'll bring them back into the land. That's great. But this is what they really need. This is the real reason for exile. They needed new hearts. They needed forgiveness of sin. And when they receive forgiveness of sin, what happens? Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew wants to make sure you know why this is important, which means God with us back into relationship with God, back into his presence. Israel lost the presence of the Lord when he departed from the temple in Ezekiel. And here God says, I'm back. I'm with you. I'm dwelling among you. So God graciously, faithfully kept the promises made to Adam and Eve and to Abraham, and to David. And rather than requiring some ritual of the people, God says, I'm coming into your world, and I'm seeking you out, and I've come to rescue you and forgive your sins. And so Jesus Christ humbled himself, became a man, and died so that he might bring us to God to solve the real problem that we have. And that's the true meaning of Christmas, isn't it? That's what it's all about. So, Christmas is a, it's a family holiday, isn't it? You're going to spend time with family this week. But as you do that, as you enjoy your family and friends, and as you think about the true meaning of Christmas, remember the family history of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas didn't just start with his birth. There's all this background that plays into the, the reason that we rejoice at his birth. 
Think about the way his family is presented here and how he is the resolution to all the problems in that family history. If you were to go back and look at my family history, there would be all sorts of issues, as there would be with yours. And Jesus is the resolution to those problems. He's the new creation. He's the last Adam who succeeds where Adam failed. He's the true blessing of Abraham to all the nations. He's the Davidic king that we need who will reign forever and bring justice and peace. And he's the true return from exile. Not just the exile from the promised land, but our exile from the presence of God because he is God with us. He brings forgiveness of sins and restores us to a relationship with the Father. So the arrival of Someone like that is certainly, certainly a reason to celebrate. So let's do it. And let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for, for this passage. We're thankful for this description of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he brings for our benefit Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for humbling yourself, coming as a man, so that we could be forgiven of our sins and brought back into your presence. We praise you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.